You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. You know, we hear this generalization that seniors aren't as technically savvy as millennials a lot of the times, and it's just not true. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, the phishing schemes, and the criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. We've got some good stories to share this week. And later in the show, my interview with Paige Schaefer. She is from Generali Global Assistance. And we're going to be talking about the digital habits of seniors and millennials and how they're being hit with some of the latest scams. Joe, uh, before we dive into our stories this week, we've got some follow-up. What do we have? So a listener, Sean, wrote in and said, Hello. On your most recent episode, you stated that you have to call Apple in order to cancel a subscription. Although that is a viable option and recommended if you need a refund, you can go to the Settings app and select Apple ID account at the top. And then from there, you can select your subscriptions. You can easily cancel your subscriptions that you have through Apple. Yeah, that is true. Uh, and I'll also note that I've had good success just following up, sending an email to Apple uh, yeah. about it. There was a subscription once that I inadvertently re-upped for a magazine and uh, yep. no fuss, no muss. They canceled it, refunded it, and I was on my way. So, Well, very good. Apple does a good job with that, it sounds like. Yeah, it seems like in this case, they are kind of on top of it. So uh, thanks to Sean for writing it in. Sean does note that you have to be on iOS 12 or above. I'm yeah. not familiar with iOS versions, so I have no idea. <laughs> I think I think he's right on with that. All right. Well, let's move on to our stories for this week. Uh, I'll start things off for us. This is an interesting one. This is from the Naked Security blog uh, over at Sophos. And it's written by Mark Stockley. It's titled, The Ransomware That Attacks You From Inside a Virtual Machine. Now, huh. this to me is, this is fascinating. And Joe, I'm going to ask uh, for your help here as we go along because okay. you have a lot more experience and, and understanding of virtual machines than I do. I, I'd say I only have a passing knowledge of them. But this is a case where a malware group, the Ragnar Locker Group, are using a virtual machine to basically hide their malware when they trick you into downloading their malware. That installs a virtual machine on your computer. The malware runs from within that virtual machine and uses some of the functionality of that virtual machine to start encrypting your files for a ransomware attack. And because your computer, your your main system really just sees this virtual machine and, and, and doesn't, by default, think that the, there's anything wrong with a virtual machine running, well, that's how they get away with it. That's how they go undetected. Is my description accurate here? What's going on? Can, can you unpack uh, for us uh, what's going on behind the scenes here? Okay, so in virtual machine lingo, we have two different types of computers. We have the host computer which is the physical computer that sits on your desk or in a server rack somewhere. That is the hardware. That is the actual computer, as you think of in a classic sense of a computer. 
Mm-hmm. And then we have the guest computer or the guest system. And that is not a physical computer. It is a virtualized computer. You can install an operating system on this virtual computer, and that operating system thinks it's on a real computer. It may actually be now modern operating systems are equipped to understand virtualization. But the guest operating system is usually viewed as a kind of possibly hostile system. But the way Mark Stockley is describing it here is that the attackers have kind of flipped this around so that they're looking at the guest operating system as their safe operating system. And this is a very small operating system or or virtual machine. It's about 100 or 280 megabytes. And it's an old Windows XP virtual machine that runs on VirtualBox. So when you're tricked into downloading the malware, you still have to do that. It downloads a, a Windows MSI product, which is just a Microsoft installer. And what that installs is VirtualBox and this malicious VM. None of that will be caught by antivirus. That's the thing, right, is, is right. that this is how they're getting around antivirus. Now, my understanding is that, uh, and I believe you've talked about on this show, how quite often you'll spin up a virtual machine when there's something suspicious that you want to run yep. to protect your system from something you suspect might be suspicious, right? Absolutely. And that's a good way to do it. But what this does is there is a feature that you can enable that allows the virtual machine to write to the files on your host machine. So the guests can actually manipulate files on the host machine. And since mm-hmm. this is essentially just ransomware, if I have this guest system configured that it can read and write files on the host, then when the host sees that these files are being changed, it sees they're being changed by a process from VirtualBox which is a known good process. So from the host's perspective, nothing bad is going on, even though these files are being encrypted. So everything that's going on within that virtual machine to the main machine is, is sort of being uh, hidden behind this, this virtual box process. That, that's all the main machine sees is that virtual right. boxes are doing these things. And that's it says, exactly well, right. virtual box is, is legit. So no, no problems here. That's right, because because if you think of it this way, the only thing the main machine knows about is VirtualBox. It doesn't know what's going on inside that. It doesn't really know that there's a whole other operating system in there. Mm-hmm. There's no cognizance of that. All the software is all smoke and mirrors and a ruse that's an interface to the CPU so we can get our work done faster, right? That's, right, right. At the base level, that's what all this is. So yeah, this this is essentially a little compartment that the operating system looks at as VirtualBox or if you were using something else. But the reason they're using VirtualBox is because it's free uh, and open source. Hmm, I see. So I suppose in terms of protecting yourself against this, you really have to prevent the initial infection, right? Yeah, prevent the initial infection. Don't install the uh, the MSI. You can prevent this by setting policies that prevent users from installing software, even if it is good software, without the interaction of an administrator. You know, but if you get targeted with this at home, this is one of the big things that I've I've been saying a lot. That usually when you're at home, uh, on your home machine, you are the administrator of that machine. If you get tricked into downloading this virtual environment and the VM, you're going to be hosed on this one. Yeah, well, it's really fascinating the way they kind of flip the script on this. It's a very innovative attack. I'm I'm almost impressed. <laughs> right, fair enough. All right. Well, that's my story uh, this week. Uh, what do you have for us, Joe? Dave, this week, my story comes from Dr. Fareem Abbasi at Trustwave. It's a blog post called Fishing in a Bucket, Utilizing Google's Firebase Storage. Now, do you know what Firebase is, Dave? I do not. I didn't know. I had to look it up. Uh, It's essentially a cloud-based service from Google that is 
backend as a service. The, the hmm. target market for Firebase is mobile app developers, and it provides them with all the infrastructure they need for mobile apps. So, you know, when you have a mobile app, a lot of that data is stored not on your phone, but in the cloud, right? Mm-hmm. And that way, if you lose your phone or you get a new phone, all that data is still available if you reinstall the app. There's a legitimate reason to have this data in the cloud, and there's a legitimate reason to have these uh, services because this Firebase service makes it really easy for an app developer to just stand up the backend database. They don't have to build the infrastructure. The infrastructure is already there. They can use it. But guess what, Dave? It's like a <laughs> hammer. <laughs> and uh, you can, like I said, you, a, a tool is it can be used for good or evil, and this one is being abused by fishers. There's a quote in the article from Dr. Abbasi that says, in effect, actors leverage the repute and services of Google Cloud's infrastructure to host their phishing credentials harvesting pages. So in other words, they're going to send you a phishing email, and the link is going to be a Google link. The links are all going to go to firebasestorage.googleapis.com, which is a legitimate Google link, Mm -hmm. right? In the article, there are some pictures of web pages that look very convincing. These are just credential harvesting web pages. They're trying to get like your Microsoft Office credentials or your Microsoft Outlook web credentials. Uh, There's one in here called RoundCube, which is uh, an email service. We receive phishing emails at Hopkins that have links to these round cube landing pages. We received a couple of them a couple of weeks ago, and I was working with our IT team to, to investigate that. Uh, and then there's one here that's Bank of America. Interesting, only the Bank of America page is listed as an unsafe web page by the browser. Most of them are not listed that way, probably because they haven't been noticed as uh, malicious web pages yet. I did a little bit of poking around in the Firebase on the Firebase webpage, and there are what look like trials. You can you can get a trial. It says try our database service, try these different products. So I suspect these phishing pages are costing the attackers very little to nothing to start up. And because mm. these phishing campaigns don't generally run for more than two or three days before the website gets flagged as malicious, it's easy for me to create a Google account, say, hey, I want to try something new, and then just upload my phishing kit and then send out the emails and collect the credentials from this site. Yeah, and I wonder what's going on behind the scenes at Google to track these things down and, and shut them down. Obviously, that's in Google's interest to do so. It is. It is. Uh, because the last thing they want is for their, their API's domain to be flagged as malicious in products like TrustWave's products. They don't want that. I know that that's probably not how that works, right? Uh, TrustWave probably investigates each and every link and finds out whether or not they're malicious. It doesn't just go, well, Google API's is a malicious domain. That's, that's probably yeah. not what they do, <laughs> right? But yeah, I mean, Google doesn't want this running because it's it's uh, damage to its reputation and it's a harm to the internet in general. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Boy, it reminds me of the old days, you know, the early days of the internet and email, you know, back in the 90s. I remember it was pretty easy to get your domain blacklisted. If somebody was spoofing, you know, emails from your domain, you could find yourself blacklisted. And all of a sudden, yeah. whole swaths of people couldn't get email from you anymore. It was a pretty big hammer they were using back then. And obviously, <laughs> yeah, it's gotten... And not- not an effective hammer. Well, I mean, a very effective hammer. It stops the spammer, but it's not not an, not an efficient hammer. You know? Yeah. When all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. 
<laughs> it's gotten a lot better since then. But I remember one time, uh, one, an organization I worked with got spontaneously, so it seemed, got their domain on a bunch of blacklists, and it was a bad couple days trying to you know make your case to get it unblacklisted. In those days, all someone had to do was send out emails with your domain as the return address, and that would get That's you right. blacklisted. It's crazy. Good times. Good times. <laughs> <laughs> those were back in the days when you'd ask somebody for their email, and they'd go, "What?" <laughs> yeah, right. I don't have one. Yeah. What is an email? Yeah, I'm not doing that. <laughs> right. All right. Those are our stories for this week. It is time to move on to our catch of the day. Joe, you've got our catch of the day this week. What do you have for us? This catch of the day comes from my daughter, Kayla. Hmm. And she received an email from Apple, and I'm using air quotes. Our listeners can't see that. You can't even see it, Dave, because we're doing this remotely <laughs> thanks to COVID-19. <laughs> this email is just an image, and it comes from this really sketchy email address that has like four domains in it. This thing is longer than my first email that I got in college, speaking of old email addresses and asking people if they knew it. But the message reads, Dear Clients, your Apple ID has just been used to purchase Hulu, stream TV shows and movies from the App Store. On a computer or device that has never been associated with your Apple ID. And then it has a date and it has a device and it has an operating system version. And it says, if you did not make this purchase or you believe an unauthorized person has accessed your account, please find the document attached to cancel your purchase without delay. Apple Store, right? Hmm. And that's all in one image. And there was also a PDF attached. And I uploaded the PDF to VirusTotal. And VirusTotal said the PDF was clean. Uh, and hmm. I previewed it in a browser. And the only thing that stood out to me was that all of the links, okay, and in this PDF, there was an order number that was a link. There was a text that said report a problem. There's a link in some kind of short privacy statement. Visit the Apple Store link. Manage your password preferences link. Summary Apple ID, terms of service, privacy policy, and even the copyright reserve link all went to the same destination, Every single one of them. That's nine links, and they all went to the same destination, which was some Iranian link shortening service. Hmm. So it had it was a, a link shortening service that ends in the .ir domain, which is Iran. Okay. And if you click on the link, Google and Chrome both warn you that this is a phishing site. I mean, and there is no mistaking that warning. It is a big red page that comes up and says, <laughs> this site back. is not safe. Don't go <laughs> right. here. So right. by the time I got this and looked at it, the phishing campaign had already been busted. But why I like this catch of the day is the way they're trying to catch people, the, the lure they're using is all the same in all of these different links. It's Every single link went to the same URL. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, the, the image that they send out uh, looks legitimate. I mean, it's got it a, does. It looks like something you'd expect to see from Apple. It's, it, fa it falls into their design style, even. Right, and the only thing that's weird is it says at the top, Dear Clients. If it had someone's name up top, then it would be more believable. But because it says Dear Clients, that's kind of a tip-off. Also, I imagine that's kind of difficult to build an image for each person you're going to send an email to. All right, that's an interesting one, and that is our catch of the day. Joe, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Paige Schaefer. She is from Generali Global Assistance, and they recently published a white paper that was looking at the digital habits of seniors and millennials and doing some comparisons between those two groups. Really interesting stuff. Here's my conversation with Paige Schaefer. We're thinking there were broad stereotypes for each of seniors and millennials, and um, while there are some stereotypes, we had a hunch that both of these groups were more alike than people think. So 
we commissioned the survey and we polled about 1,500 seniors and 1,500 millennials and came back with a lot of data and were able to parse out and make some important insights. And, and we discovered that they're a lot more alike than maybe we suspected. And, you know, some of the inf- information that we learned could be helpful to various institutions, financial insurance and allowing folks to reach their target audiences better. Well, let's go through some of the results together. What were some of the key findings here? Well, there were several insights that we learned. If you think about folks connecting to IoT devices, and 21% of seniors and 22% of millennials are connecting to 7-plus Wi-Fi acceptable devices on a weekly basis, but most are connecting to 5 or less. And unsurprisingly, millennials led the way in terms of digital service adoption, with one exception, a couple of percent difference uh, where seniors are concerned and that seniors say that they shop online versus millennials, 87% to 85%. And across the generations, the biggest gap in digital service use is seen in ride-sharing apps. So obviously, millennials are more hip to take an Uber or a lift. So 37% of millennials did and 50% of seniors. You know, a little bit of a variance there. Some of it's, you know, we hear this generalization that seniors aren't as technically savvy as millennials a lot of the times, and it's just not true. In fact, today, seniors play a big part in bringing technology into the household. And I think that's why we're seeing such similar uses in IoT devices where many people wrongly assume that millennials use at a much higher rate. Yeah, it's really, it's interesting to me because I think there's this popular uh, perception in a lot of people's minds, and I, I'll, I'll put myself in that category of making this mistake of kind of, when you say senior, you know, picturing in my mind, you know, someone like uh, Granny from the old Tweety Bird cartoons, you know, this <laughs> this, this old lady, and, uh, and that's simply not the case anymore. You know, seniors these days are, uh, you know, living active lives, and part of that is being a part of the digital economy. Yeah, and I would say the retirement age is much later now. And until all of this craziness started recently, I, you know, I think you had longer time in the workplace, more hit, more healthy. And so you're absolutely right. You know, I, when I think about myself, I'm mid fifties, and ARPs found me, and I, I, I don't consider myself. Right, right. But but I feel a long way from that. If you think about it, the internet and all of the technology came into play in what the early late eighties, early nineties, or now it's been several years, and so people are kind of used to and hip to the technology, regardless of the age range. Were there any particular surprises that came out of the survey? Things that uh, came up that perhaps you didn't expect. So we looked at a number of different areas. We looked at areas of how people store their, you know, if they use password protectors and 40% of seniors store their information on paper and locked in a home office and a greater number, 40% of millennials use an online password storage system. So I think this might be a little bit more generational. That's not terribly surprising. What was interesting to me is across generations, a similar number have a few different passwords that they rotate between accounts so that there's no need to store them. And actually, seniors have a leg up on millennials regarding password reuse and that 45% of seniors use the same password across zero to one accounts, while only 31% of millennials can say the same. 
hmm. they are using the same passwords across two to three. So I don't know if it's a laziness factor or because of speed at which millennials are plowing through information and stuff, they're using the same passwords, but that's not a great habit to have. And so regardless, you know, we obviously recommend that you're using different passwords, can use a password protector where you can, but seniors seem to be doing a little bit better where password guarding is concerned. Some of the other information that was interesting, social media usage between the generations show the greatest Disparity. So with a full half of millennials, 49% have chosen the highest privacy settings possible. Only 30% of seniors have done the same. So while 42% of millennials say they're extremely likely or likely to share their location and away from home status when they are out, only 14% of seniors practice this habit. So, you know, we think that, that seniors are making the right choice and sharing less on social media, but it also could be kind of a lack of awareness where privacy settings are concerned. So that was kind of an interesting finding. The thing that was most shocking to me is uh, an alarming number of both seniors and millennials are sharing their bank account information with others outside of their spouses. Hmm. Um, and I, I was I was really surprised about this. So a whopping 56% of millennials allow either parents, siblings, close friends, or another familiar relative to access their banking information, hmm. where nine, 19% of seniors allow their parents, siblings, close friends, other uh, familiar relative to access their banking information. So almost one in two of, of seniors and one in three of millennials say no one else has access to their information. So, you know, over half of the millennials and roughly one in five seniors share their banking information with at least one family member or friend outside. And unfortunately, this tracks with Javelin's findings in their 2018 fraud study, where fraud rate jumped 15%. So keeping this information private is really one of the best ways to avoid financial fraud. Yeah, that's interesting because, again, I, I think there's this perception, whether, whether it's a, an incorrect stereotype or not, you know, to, to think of the millennials yeah. as being the oversharers. That's right. It's uh, pretty interesting. I thought another thing that was interesting is that seniors, they seem to be making a more concerted effort to understand identity theft and fraud, but not enough of either seniors or millennials are taking enough action to prevent. So while 35% of seniors feel they have a solid foundation and knowledge and 28% feel the same of millennials, and while there's the seeking out of information uh, for both generations, it seems there's a gap in having access to trustworthy sources of identity theft protection. So one, it's either overwhelming for people or two, you know, they're not sure who to trust. These organizations have a vested and real interest in their customers' financial well-being. If you think about banks and insurance organizations, they're the top two that are most trusted by these groups. Hmm. You know, for, for those of us who, who sit in the middle as a uh, Gen Xer myself and has both uh, senior parents who uh, I'm looking out for, but also uh, kids who are millennials, are, are there any takeaways here for advice for, for making sure that those folks on either side of us are staying safe? I would say uh, the thing that unites is that consumers across all age groups want identity protection from a company that they know and trust. And 
the financial institutions and insurance companies are positioned really well with this regard. Among seniors, 84% believe that financial institutions are doing all they can to protect their data. 82% believe that insurance companies are doing all they can. And um, the numbers are very similar across millennials. Uh, 80% believe that financial institutions are doing all they can. And 88% believe that insurance companies are doing all they can. So with the high confidence in these types of organizations, it's surprising that more are not offering identity protection. We happen to have a number of, of, uh, we're we're a business-to-business organization, and many of our clients are both financial institutions and banks, and they do very well in that they are, by large, very trusted brands, and people follow them, and whether they have their have had their auto insurance with them for years or uh, whether they've been banking with them for years and see continued improvements in security, it would make sense that folks are buying through those channels. It's just really important that you've got an organization, whether you're going directly to a, a identity protection company or buying through a business that sells identity protection, that you've got you know a robust offering that looks at phishing, that monitors your information out on the dark web, that monitors your credit, that offers some insurance, checks key logging and malware and all of those things. So look, I think technology is an awesome it's an awesome thing and it's gonna get better and better. And it's just a matter of kind of protecting your lifestyle and having another technology or a group that you know, an expert group that you can call if something goes south. It's interesting where seniors, it, and maybe it's a time factor if you consider folks are retired, that they have more time to look into information, but it's very good to educate yourself, to, you know, read and listen to, to podcasts such as yourself to hear what's going on out there so you can be aware and hit to the many frauds out there. And I would say, unfortunately and tragically, through this COVID thing, it's no different. There's a lot of fraud out there that people are perpetrating, whether it's selling bogus medical equipment online, et cetera, or claiming to be uh, the government bailout, uh, sending you checks and that, and then saying they've overpaid, please send money, uh, the difference back. Uh, there's lots of stuff out there. So education is critical and, and make yourself aware. All right, Joe, what do you think? I think this is a very good topic for research. I think that there's a lot of these preconceived notions that we have that are not true. Right. Mm-hmm. The, the general gist of things is that seniors don't get technology and they're not going to be as savvy with it. I find it interesting that between seniors and millennials, everybody connects to about seven or uses seven different Wi-Fi devices throughout the day. That's more than I use in, in terms of Wi-Fi connected devices. I use essentially my phone and sometimes right now my Chromebook. So that's two. Everything else is generally hardwired to my network. I, I do use a lot of stuff hardwired to the network. <laughs> Yes, you're, you're um, an edge case, Joe. You're an edge case. Yes, I am. I am definitely an edge case in this, in this scenario. So nobody should be uh, basing any research on, on me. I'm too many standard deviations away from the mean. Ride sharing apps. I think this is interesting. You know, I, I have a story about this. We went to a family wedding uh, a couple of years ago. One of my cousins was getting married and my parents were there and they had busing service from the reception back to the hotel so that nobody had to drink and drive. It was, you know, it's all great. We were bused from the from the church to the reception area and then we were going to be bused from the reception area back to the hotel. And my, my father was like, I'm done. I want to go home. And the only way we had to get them home was get an Uber. 
they had never taken an Uber before. So I summoned an Uber with my app and I said, you know, take them back to the hotel. And the Uber showed up. My parents were taken back to the hotel. Everything all went off fine. And my mom was like, this is great. I got to get this app. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, it's funny that older people don't use the, the ride sharing apps as much as younger people do. Many times when I travel now, I don't even rent a car anymore because it's mm. more cost effective for me to just use a ride sharing app. Yeah, there's a service called Go Go Grandparents, I believe it's called, and oh, yeah. uh, my in-laws use it, and it's basically a human middleman between them and a, a ride-sharing app like Uber, and basically it makes it so that they don't have to have the app; they can call someone, and that person they call has a prearranged, you know, deal with the ride-sharing company, and they basically order the ride. <laughs> <laughs> and make it happen. And they charge a little extra. But another interesting component of it is that you can set it so that anytime uh, a ride is ordered, someone else gets notified. So in this case, uh, my wife gets notified when her parents are taking a ride sharing app. So that, and, and that's that opt like in, you know, they, service. Yeah, they choose to have that happen. But if you want a, an extra little bit of uh of assurance or just being able to know where people are, you know, mom's on her way to the doctor or the grocery store or whatever, uh, you can dial that in. So interesting that someone has seen an opportunity to take advantage of what could be some people's uh, reticence to use technology and they're stepping in and kind of providing that middleman uh, component. If there's a market for them, that's great. They also add more value by providing the notification to someone else, which is, I right. think it's a fantastic service. Paige makes a really good point in here. I don't feel as old as I am, Dave. Um, <laughs> I don't feel like I'm in my 50s. And I don't know what effect that has on me in terms of like technology and things like that. But I still love picking up new technology. Again, maybe this is me being an edge case. But I do sometimes feel it like when I when I have to look at Facebook, right? And when I have to get on Facebook, I hate Facebook. I wish I could do what Dave Bittner did and just get rid of it, you know? Um You've told me that you've been happier with this, but I have I have uh, so much communication that happens with so much family on that medium that I can't I can't just just walk away from it. I'm kind of they've got yeah. me, Dave. They've I, got me in your I understand. family handcuffs. So that's I that's understand. how I feel like kind of old Manny. It's good to know that password use isn't going away. <laughs> that that uh, millennials are still practicing that. Hey, good job, guys. Uh, no, use a password manager. Everybody should use a password manager until such a time as we have something that replaces passwords, which I think is coming sooner than we think. Privacy settings on social media, I thought it was interesting that fewer older people had their privacy settings set to the most uh, strict privacy settings than, than the younger people. Younger people do that, and I think that's good. I think older people should probably also do that as well. 42% of millennials versus 14% of seniors will tell people that they're, not, that they're away from home. I think there's more to that than younger people being stupid here. I think younger people actually have a lower risk of telling people that they're away. They may live in a situation where just because they're away, they're, that doesn't mean their house is empty, right? They, mm. They're more likely to, sh to have roommates or more likely to still live with their parents, whereas seniors almost always live by themselves. They, they, you know, they're empty nesters or they're, you know, it's just, a, you know, just one or two people living in the house. And if they say, I'm out of town, that essentially sends a signal, this house is empty, come rob it, right? <laughs> but if, if you're a millennial, that doesn't send the same message. Hey, I'm out of town. Does that mean I should go rob your house? Well, not if you don't want to contend with my roommates. They're still at home or my parents are still at home. This doesn't strike me as the big revelation that uh, Paige seemed to be thinking it was. I, mean, I, I think there's 
there's lower risk to millennials saying, I'm out of town. She talked about having access to banking information outside of a spousal relationship. We actually still have access to our children's banking information. Actually, my wife does. And that's because those accounts were started as child accounts at the same institution that we had that we still and we still use. And we're still financially bound to our children through things like auto insurance and car payments. Uh, yeah. They have to make those they, those payments every week, and it's just easier for us to move that money from their account to our account and then pay, make the payments. It makes sense to me that, that more millennials uh, have people outside of a spousal relationship with access to their bank accounts as well. I was surprised by the number of seniors that let that happen. I don't think that's good. I don't have anybody outside of my spousal relationship that has access to any of my accounts. Yeah, I, I have access to my parents' accounts. I guess my parents have let me know how to have access to their accounts. In other words, if something were to happen to my parents, uh, I know where everything is. I know, you know, I, I'm I'm a signatory on enough things that transitions could be made and and those sorts of thing, things could happen. But it's not a it's not an active day to day kind of thing or anything like that. I think it's interesting, you know, getting back to the granny thing. I, I think it's interesting that people are staying youthful a lot longer. Uh, yeah. So the perceptions have changed. You know, it used to be that people in their 60s, you know, they'd retire and, you know, they they had a lot more miles on them than, than we do. And there's a lot of right. reasons for that. Um, right. But I think it's also important for folks like you and I to remember that we are in the grandparent zone, right? We are we are old <laughs> yes. enough. Our children are old enough that it would not be surprising that for us to be grandparents. And, and certainly no, there are plenty not. of people that we've gone to school with that we grew up with who are grandparents. And yeah. I have to say it was a very strange feeling. The first close friend I had who I went, grew up and went through high school with, when uh, she became a grandparent, I was like, what? Yeah. <laughs> but we're still young. <laughs> yeah. My daughter is going to be getting married soon. You're right. I, shortly after that, I expect to be a grandparent. So that's like on the very near horizon to me. <laughs> Whew, I think about this every now and then, Dave, and it's kind of like, uh, you know, I don't know. Am I ready for this? I don't know. I was, you know. Yeah, well, and, you don't have a choice, do you? Time marches on. I don't have on. a choice. Yeah, I better be ready yes. for it. That's, that's all there is to it. That's right. Well, yeah. we'll leave it there. We'll leave yep. it there. As, uh, as uh, Joe and I get a little introspective about uh, the, the march of time. Um, yeah. We want to thank all of you for listening uh, to our show. That is our show for this week. We want to thank the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our coordinating producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. 